Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post. Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. Well... I hope you've been following me on uh, social media, Twitter and Facebook. Everybody else has in TV and radio, and that's a good thing. I have to make decisions at the beginning of a early morning or actually late at night, and that is, do I post things or do I save them for radio or TV and Levin TV? And here I decided I've got to address the narrative. Now, you Levinites, you're on to all this. Most of you read uh, Unfreedom of the Press, or you've heard me talk about it, so you know about the New York Times and the media generally, and you know how corrupt they are, and you know they seek to destroy this president and the founding principles. They don't give a damn about the Constitution, those who understand it, and they're advancing an agenda. You know all these things. You also know that when the New York Times runs a story, perfectly timed, perfectly timed, that it's the same New York Times that covered up the Holocaust and Stalin's slaughter of of Ukrainians. It's the same New York Times that still promotes anti-Semitism, and the same New York Times that says America was founded and will always have in its DNA slavery. So we have no respect for its credibility, and we have a reason to have no respect for its credibility, given its historical pattern of deceit and lying and ideological bias. Now that said... That was a long article they wrote about John Bolton's book. And we're told tonight that the only office that received a copy of his manuscript in late December was, in fact, the National Security Council. Not other White House offices, not other agencies, the NSC. So it should be relatively easy for the Attorney General and the Director of the FBI to send some of their top FBI agents to the NSC track down who had hands on the uh, manuscript and put them under uh, penalty of perjury, or even better yet, false statements, lie detector tests, and get to the bottom of it. Because you see, when, when somebody or individuals leak to the media, they have an agenda. Just like the New York Times has an agenda, the leakers have an agenda. And we the people, in order to better understand who's doing what, it would be helpful if we knew who was leaking. Now, this NSC has been a rat's nest. The so-called whistleblower and Obama holdover came out of the NSC. Two of Adam Schiff's staffers, one in particular who coordinated with the so-called whistleblower, came out of the NSC. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who's a reprobate, in my humble opinion, with allegiances to Ukraine. And you can have an allegiance to Ukraine... But you can't have any superior allegiance to Ukraine than you can the United States. And yes, I said it. I don't care how many colors he has on his uniform. 
I don't care how many ribbons he has on his uniform. And he wouldn't be the first. And he's still there. And his brother's there. How many countries would tolerate that? But that's not my focus. Here we are, going back, the end of December. The House impeachment vote is over. The president has been impeached. The matter is going to go to the Senate at some point, some point relatively soon, not six, eight, ten months from the point of impeachment. And John Bolton and his lawyer Chuck Cooper, I've known them both for decades, submit his manuscript to the NSC at that point? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? I'll tell you why in a minute. And not expected to be leaked. John Bolton worked at the NSC. He knew he was surrounded in many cases with vipers. He knew that. Told me so. And leakers. And Obama holdovers and people hostile to this president. Well, I'll tell you why. Because this, this now matches up with the litigation strategy, which was a little weird. But now we can understand it better. John uh, Bolton joined his uh, subordinate, Kupperman, in a case in front of a federal judge asking for an opinion on whether or not he was free to testify before the House of Representatives if they pressed the point. Caught between executive privilege and a potential demand by the House. Well, the House passed. But the lawsuit went on for a bit. And then all of a sudden, Mr. Producer... He dropped it, and he said, I'm available should the Senate want to hear my testimony. Remember that? And we were perplexed. What exactly is going on? Well, now we know. The initial litigation, seeking some kind of declaratory judgment, I suppose, was in order to delay any effort by the House Should the House want John Bolton's testimony? Why? Because he was writing his book. And he didn't want to reveal the information in his book before the book would become public and published. And then the House impeaches the President of the United States. Got to impeach him before Christmas. And shortly thereafter, magically, The manuscript, which is now completed, is sent to the NSC for review. Now, there's a lot of authors out there and a lot of publishers out there. I want you to think about this. This means he wrote his book within a two, two and a half month period, which is exceptionally fast. And he had it edited, edited within a two, two and a half month period. Exceptionally fast, unless it was just an outline. But an outline is not good enough for the NSA to make a judgment on whether information in the book should be revealed or not. And then, Bolton decides, around the same period, and his lawyer, Cooper, I'm available to (laughs) testify in the Senate. They dropped their case. Now, why did he do that? They did that because they didn't want to be accused later After the trial, 
of withholding information that would have been pertinent to the trial. And so they said they'd make themselves available, even though Bolton never thought he would testify because he knew the president of the United States. John's a constitutionalist. He knows he knew the president of the United States would have to assert executive privilege or there'd be some kind of fight over this. Meanwhile, his book is published to come out in, in March. In March, about six months after he left the White House, super fast by his publisher, Simon & Schuster, which happens to be my publisher, shockingly. So for Bolton, this was all driven by his book. His litigation strategy was driven by his book. First to bring a case, then to drop a case, and he never thought he would have to testify. I'm just surmising, just putting things together, which is what I do. Two and two equal four, where I come from. The room where it happened, the, the cover's all over the place. The room where it drudges out there, hacking it away, hawking it, pushing it. And so it leaks. Some of it leaks to the New York Times, which hates Donald Trump. Hates Donald Trump. Just endorsed two Democrats. Hasn't endorsed a Republican probably in almost half a century, give or take. The news pages do the bidding of the left, of the Democrats, of the leakers and the FBI and the prosecutors. Push their Russia collusion nonsense for years. They want Trump. And so they went with the story. And all of a sudden, all the news outlets, you saw it. Some of you probably panicked. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, John, John Bolton has said that there was a link between aid and, and investigating the Bidens, or at least announcing an investigation. He said it. He's written it, apparently, according to the New York Times. Although they use the word, Mr. Producer, from the New York Times, preferred. Have you noticed that, Rich? Preferred, but got to put the worst spin possible on this. So Bolton is the new John Dean, but Bolton isn't can't be John Dean, even if he fashions himself John Dean, because the president didn't commit any crimes. He didn't violate the law. John Dean said Nixon did, and of course John Dean was the quarterback of much of it. But that aside, so there's no Watergate. John Bolton was out to make a quick buck. I hate to say this. Because he's apparently written a kiss and tell book. When you're national security advisor to the president of the United States, you don't write kiss and tell books. I served in government for eight years. And for many years at the highest levels of government. In the White House, as chief of staff to the attorney general of the United States, I saw a lot of things. There were a lot of passionate debates, strong disagreements, even shouting matches from time to time. How in the world can you keep notes or have a memory and write these things and put them in a book for money? How can you do that? You really, 
you really reveal yourself. I mean, he lobbied for that job. He lobbied me for that job. He lobbied a lot of people for that job. And he knew the President of the United States, and he didn't see eye to eye. But he wanted to be a positive influence. But he's not the President. The President's the President. That's a fact. Now, as for the New York Times piece, I went through it very, very carefully, and then I asked my wife, who's also a lawyer, Julie, said, go through this. Do you see any direct quotes from the manuscript? You know how many direct quotes from the manuscript were in the article, Mr. Producer? None! Zero! Zero! And if you read the article carefully, which is tough, because it's a long, monotonous piece of propaganda... It moves between the anonymous sources and the manuscript and opinion and inferences. It does what the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, and the rest of them always do. It mixes fact with fiction to the extent there's fact and always uses anonymous sources. In the areas where they take on Bill Barr and Mulvaney, among others, Bill Barr and Mulvaney say no. What's written in the article is not accurate. It applies to them. And it all comes out at the last minute. At the very last minute. Isn't that amazing? Because the president's lawyers have done a bang-up job. They did a bang-up job for a couple hours Saturday. I must say today they've been outstanding. I love the the armchair, former this and former that. I told them to argue this, and I would argue that. Why don't they just shut up? They have no idea what the hell they're talking about. They have no experience in this stuff, none whatsoever. None whatsoever. And so, of course, the media and the Democrats... Demand witnesses now. We got a we got a Bolton and Mulvaney. I mean, look, look at the New York Times piece. Look at the New York Times piece. Tommy, was the president impeached based on the New York Times piece? It's impossible, right? New York Times piece came out within the last twenty four hours. So the, all the Democrats, but one who voted for the president's impeachment, it wasn't based on anything in the New York Times piece. Isn't the president on trial for the impeachment? As voted upon by the House? What is it? Any New York Times story? Any leak? By a disloyal American in the government trying to take out the president at this propitious moment? That has to become part of the trial? Well, what is it? Is it a trial based on the articles of impeachment and the information presented by the House? Or is it a trial based on impeachment and anything else they can come up with? That somebody leaks or the media writes and so forth and so on. Can you imagine if that's the standard? If that's the model going forward? But it must not be. But the focus really is, ladies and gentlemen, on a handful of Republicans. And based on what a couple of them said today, they are played for the buffoons that they are. Susan Collins... Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney in particular. This proves, you see, that we're leaning more towards having witnesses like Bolton. What does? A leak, a nefarious act 
by some sleazeball at the NSC encourage you, encourages you to call a witness? John Bolton, who's writing a kiss-and-tell book? For, I'd love to see his contract now. I mean, if the book is on the record, we ought to see what he's getting paid and all the other terms in the contract. That might be an idea. I've got a lot more. We'll be right back. Mark in. You've heard me talk about the four pillars of education at Hillsdale College. Now, these four pillars or purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom, have defined Hillsdale's mission since 1844. I'd like to focus on the first pillar, learning. Hillsdale understands, as America's founders did, that a proper education is essential to preserving free government. Among other things, young people must be taught about America's great heritage of liberty. They must be taught about how government works and the importance of the Constitution. And they must develop the skills to become useful citizens and the virtues required for self-government. Because so many high schools, colleges, and universities fall short in these areas today, Hillsdale has expanded its mission nationwide. For example, through its free online courses, its free monthly speech digest and primus, and the classical K-12 through charter schools it's helping to found coast-to-coast. Discover how you and your children can learn from Hillsdale College, too. Go to levinforhillsdale.com. You know, there's a lot to get to tonight. The NPR issue, and also Kobe Bryant. I want to give each of them the time that they deserve. That this deserves a lot of time. And... Um, Ladies and gentlemen, let me explain the witness situation to you, why the Democrats want it. It's a quagmire. There's no end to it. And just because Susan Collins and Cory Gardner and some of the others are concerned about the re-election, trying to make nice, trying to be Solomon, cut the baby in half or not, and guys like Mitt Romney are trying to breathe life back into their Their failed uh, political careers, really. I mean, for Romney not to get elected to the Senate from Utah would be a shocking political earthquake. And others, for personal reasons, who don't much like this president. You need to understand, if you call one witness, then there's another witness, and there's another witness. And already Schiff's saying, no depositions. We want public hearings on the witnesses, like he controls the Senate. They're trying to continue to destroy these institutions, and they will take the Senate if Romney and Susan Collins and Schiff and Schumer win the day. The Republicans will lose the Senate. More when I return. You've heard me talk about the four pillars of education at Hillsdale College. Now, these four pillars or purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom, have defined Hillsdale's mission since 1844. I'd like to focus on the first pillar, learning. Hillsdale understands, as America's founders did, that a proper education is essential to preserving free government. Among other things, young people must be taught about America's great heritage of liberty. They must be taught about how government works and the importance of the Constitution. And they must develop the skills to become useful citizens and the virtues required for self-government. Because so many high schools, colleges, and universities fall short in these areas today, Hillsdale has expanded its mission nationwide, for example, through its free online courses, its free monthly speech digest and primus, and the classical K-12 through charter schools it's helping to found coast-to-coast. Discover how you and your children can learn from Hillsdale College, too. Go to levinforhillsdale.com. 
The new American Revolution starts here. The Mark Levin Show. Call in at 877-381-3811. Now, the New York Times piece changes absolutely nothing. There was no quid pro quo. There was no treason. There was no bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And I'll say it again. Where's the witness that saw the impeachable offense? Where's the witness that saw the quid pro quo? There aren't any. Where's the documenting, documentary evidence of a quid pro quo or the impeachable offense? There isn't any. This is a manuscript of a book. The fact is, as a friend of mine just wrote me, how can it be a quid pro quo? How can there be anything unlawful or impeachable? When the Ukrainians got what they wanted, and the United States didn't get anything. It's no investigation of the Bidens, no announced investigation of the Bidens, and they got their money. So then they say, well, that's because Trump got caught. Listen, put aside their, their leftist propaganda. Nothing happened. Nothing. Zero. But we need more witnesses to tell us nothing happened. I would ask Susan Collins. What other witnesses would you like? Would you like Hunter Biden? And to prove what exactly? We know there was no quid pro. What is your point? Come on the program and tell us. Mitt Romney, come on the program and tell us. You like to talk to the Washington Compost. Talk to me. We'd like to know. And the media keep pushing these, uh, these Republicans. Alexander, Murkowski, Gardner, Romney, Collins. That's how they become famous or infamous, if you will. Have you heard of Fred Flights? He's been on this program a few times. He's a great guy. He's a great patriot. He worked at the CIA. He worked at the NSC. And he's best friends he's been with Ambassador Bolton. And he had a piece today, which most of you aren't even aware of, because the media don't care. It was posted at Fox News. And he says, it was crushing to read weekend press reports that my friend and former boss, John Bolton, plans to publish a tell-all book on his time as President Trump's national security advisor. The book reportedly will be published in March 2020. Given the importance of protecting a presidential confidential discussions with his senior advisors, I strongly disagree with Bolton's decision to release the book before the November presidential election and call on him to withdraw it from the publisher immediately. Flight strikes, I've known John Bolton for 30 years and served as his chief of staff twice at the State Department from 2001 to 2005, and recently at the White House National Security Council in 2018. He's an exceptional national security expert and a man of great integrity. President Trump's choice of Bolton is one of the best personnel decisions, and I... And, and, and was I very sorry when the courageous and visionary national security advisor left the White House after the relationship broke down? He says Bolton played an important role in some of the President Trump's most successful foreign policy decisions, and he lists them. But presidents must be able to candidly consult with their advisors without worrying they will leak their discussions to the press or obtain high-dollar book contracts to publish them. A book by a former national security advisor 
ahead of a president's re-election bid may set a dangerous precedent since it could discourage future presidents from seeking advice from expert advisors on sensitive national security matters. This is what's shocking to me. John Bolton knows all this. His lawyer, Chuck Cooper, he knows all this. I know these guys. And they know that this is destructive of the office of the presidency. They know this is destructive of a president's ability to make decisions, whether they like the president or not. This is why executive privilege exists, writes Flights, to allow the president and other senior officials to keep certain communications and internal deliberations private if disclosing them would disrupt the functions or decision-making processes of the executive branch. He says, I haven't seen Bolton's book manuscript, and I don't know what's in it. I take Bolton and his staff at their word that they didn't leak the manuscript to the New York Times, but I believe they're still responsible for this leak since Bolton's explosive book was sent to the leak-prone National Security Council for a security review in December 2019, so the book could be published by the spring of 2020. You see, Flights worked at the NSC with Bolton, and he knows how many bad actors are there and how they leak against this administration. He goes on. It's also inexplicable how such a sensitive manuscript could be sent to the NSC in the middle of the impeachment process, which was my point. And the only answer to that, ladies and gentlemen, is to try and get it published as fast as you can to maximize your book revenue. He says, under such circumstances, a leak of the manuscript was all but certain. If a manuscript of this sensitivity was to be published at all, this should happen after the election, not in the spring of 2020. I don't understand, he says, the need for a former national security advisor to publish a tell-all book critical of a president he served, especially during a presidential re-election campaign, that will determine the fate of the country. There will be a time for Bolton to speak out without appearing to try to tip a presidential election. Former Secretary, now this is from one of his best friends, who was his chief of staff twice. Former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, who stepped down in June 2011, published a devastating book titled Duty, Memoirs of a Secretary of War, that detailed the incompetence of Vice President Joe Biden and the Obama National Security Council staff. But because he did not want his internal knowledge of the workings of the Obama administration and his interactions with Obama to affect the outcome of the 2012 presidential election, Gates did not publish his book until January 2014. Gates established a principled precedent on how senior advisors to presidents should write about their experiences. And given Ambassador Bolton's long and distinguished record of government service, I believe it is vital that he follow this precedent. And he's calling on Bolton to withdraw his book. I guarantee you he won't. Because I suspect he's getting millions. And the more he reveals, the more they hope to sell. And I'm sure he gets uh, a guarantee, like I do, and then anything over that guarantee, he gets a percentage. So I won't be buying the book, and I would discourage you from buying the book as well. This is a very sad place where Bolton finds himself, but that's not what upsets me. What upsets me is what he's done. He's the office of the presidency. 
in the middle of an impeachment trial where the worst of the worst, and we've seen them with both eyes, have conducted themselves in ways that Stalin would be proud. And Mitt Romney, of course, he sees all this. He sees, oh, you mean he doesn't? Well, how does this all affect Mitt Romney? Well, let's listen to what he said today. Cut one, go. I've said for some time that I hope to be able to hear from John Bolton. I think with a story that came out uh, yesterday, it's increasingly apparent that it would be important to hear from John Bolton. Uh, I, I, of course, will make a final decision on witnesses after we've heard from not only the prosecution, but also Tell me, why is it important to hear from John Bolton? If the article's 100% correct, what is it, Mr. Romney, that's in the article that you think is important to hear? There's a lot of questions I have about this article. No quotes. These discussions that John Bolton had with the president, were there other people present? You know, there's not another person who's come forward. Not another one. I was in a meeting with John Bolton, the president, and three others. And the president said this. There's not another one. And all of a sudden, John Bolton hated by the Democrats, hated by the media, hated by the left. Now they hang on his every syllable. What's John Bolton? We need to hear from John, John Bolton. They blocked him from getting confirmed as ambassador to the United Nations. He was acting ambassador his entire tenure. But now, at least while it serves their purposes, they, they threw him up on their shoulders, parading around. We must hear from John Bolton. And Romney says, now more than ever, we must hear from Bolton. About what? What did the president tell him? Again, play along. Why does it matter? There was no quid pro quo. There was no treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. None. By the way, Eric Hirschman and Pam Bondi, as well as the others, wow, they destroyed the Bidens. You're not going to see any of this in the newspapers tomorrow. They absolutely ripped them to shreds. Ripped them to shreds. Go ahead. But I think at this stage it's pretty fair to say that uh, John Bolton has a uh, relevant uh, testimony to provide to those of us who are sitting in impartial justice. Relevant to what? This is why they leak. The left leaks to the left. The Democrats leak to the Democrats. Because they know there's Mitt Romney's and Susan Collins's and the others. You see, they have open-minded and they want impartial justice. Tell me, Mitt, where were you when the Democrats in the House refused to allow the Republicans call witnesses? Did you hold any press conferences or pressers in the hallways of the Senate? You were nowhere. Why is that, Mitt? Why now? And why do they think this is going to be easier in the Senate? All the same privileges a president can, can assert, he can assert in the Senate. So they're in a hurry in the House, and now they're going to slow down in the Senate. The arguments that the Democrats used in the House, it'll take too long. Don't they apply to the Senate? Of course they do. But they want to screw up the Senate. And the problem for McConnell and the other Republicans is they have these weak links. Most of the Republican senators know exactly what the hell's going on. Their opinions aren't going to be changed by this setup with the New York Times. And there will be more. 
like the Kavanaugh hearings, like the Bork hearings, like the Clarence Thomas hearings. There'll be more because this is what the Democrats do. They leak to each other. And then they wave around their own leaks like the FBI did when it was going after Trump. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. You've heard me talk about the four pillars of education at Hillsdale College. Now, these four pillars or purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom, have defined Hillsdale's mission since 1844. I'd like to focus on the first pillar, learning. Hillsdale understands, as America's founders did, that a proper education is essential to preserving free government. Among other things, young people must be taught about America's great heritage of liberty. They must be taught about how government works and the importance of the Constitution. And they must develop the skills to become useful citizens and the virtues required for self-government. Because so many high schools, colleges, and universities fall short in these areas today, Hillsdale has expanded its mission nationwide. For example, through its free online courses, its free monthly speech digest and primus, and the classical K-12 through charter schools it's helping to found coast-to-coast. Discover how you and your children can learn from Hillsdale College, too. Go to levinforhillsdale.com. The talk was that John Bolton resigned or was fired because of disagreements with the president. Right, Mr. Producer? I don't remember Bolton saying, I resigned because of a quid pro quo involving Ukraine. Do you? I don't remember that. This is all so sleazy. There are a lot of great conservative organizations out there doing some incredible work. But I want to take a minute and talk to you about the MRC, or as I like to call them, America's Media Watchdog. The great Brent Bozell is going to be here in the third hour. We're going to discuss National Public Radio, I mean National Public Radio, and the reporter for National Public Radio, and the setup of Pompeo, and how all kinds of miscreants are coming to their defense. Poor National Public Radio. One of the reasons I came out early this morning was posting the things that I posted as quickly as we posted them, was to get the message out because too often, too often you get a sheeple effect. And you could see it on cable TV, you could see it elsewhere. Where people are throwing in with the reprobates. Not because they agree with them, because, oh my God, look, look, what are we going to do? It says here in the New York Times, John Bolton said that the that the president did, in fact, link the two, but the president, in fact, did not. Look, no leak is going to change the fact. No New York Times article is going to change the fact. No commentary on cable is going to change the fact that nothing wrong was done, let alone illegal or impeachable. Nothing wrong was done, period. And even if the president had withheld the aid, he's allowed to do it. But he didn't withhold. Well, he got caught. Got caught from what? So concerned about that phone call, ladies and gentlemen, was the president, that he released it. He released the call. He released the aid. Incredible. What liars. So we have Mitt Romney. 
And I think the phrase I would use for Mitt Romney, Mr. Producer, is a jackass, really. But then we have Schumer. And everybody listens to Schumer when they want some common sense, don't they? This is the guy that pushed the Russia collusion nonsense. This is the guy who pushed for these special counsel. Remember who this reprobate is. This is the guy who imposed the impeachment of Clinton. And then when Clinton was in the Senate, he got elected to the Senate. He opposed the the use of witnesses. Now, we can't have witnesses or it's a cover-up. Cut three, go. And now, according to the New York Times, Ambassador Bolton wrote in his book that he was ordered by the president to continue freezing assistance until Ukraine announced the political investigations. That's not what the article says, Mr. Producer, is it? That he was ordered to withhold aid until Ukraine announced an investigation? The word that the New York Times uses, ladies and gentlemen, is preferred. Even if you take the New York Times at its word, the text does not say what Chuck Schumer says it says. He's a liar. Another jackass, may I say with all due respect. Go ahead. Seeking, including the investigation into the Bidens. This, By the way, is- if you heard Bondi and Hirschman today, a few hours ago, on the president's legal team, You know why the president brought up the Bidens. It is unbelievable what Hunter Biden and Joe Biden were doing. Absolutely unbelievable. And you won't see the light of day in the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN or MSNBC. And frankly, most newsrooms. It won't see the light of day. And they had new information based on emails. Now you might say, but Mark, I thought you were opposed to new information. Look, the defense can bring up whatever it wants. (laughs) because the Republicans of the president couldn't bring up anything in the House. They couldn't bring up witnesses. They couldn't bring up emails. They couldn't bring up new evidence. They couldn't bring up anything without the permission of a material witness by the name of Adam Schiff, who's doing a cover-up on his own behalf. The Democrats ran the show over there. A great band of Stalinists. So, of course, the defense can bring up information they would have brought up if given a chance in the House. I'll be right back. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-381. So, what's happening is the trivialization of impeachment in the impeachment trial. As the Democrats try and dumb it down and dumb it down and reduce it to no standards at all. John Bolton as a manuscript for a book. My God. What's in it? Be good. He's got a huge book contract. Well, what's in it? 
Well, we only know to the extent that the New York Times has told us. Well, how do they know? Because somebody leaked something, apparently, about the book. Why would they do that? Well, why do you think? And there's no quotation marks in the, in the story from the manuscript. Well, why is that? Well, either the New York Times doesn't actually have the manuscript and information was provided, opinion and so forth, or it's trying to protect the source somehow. The New York Times, isn't that a newspaper? No, it's not. It's a Democrat Party platform in every way. Well, doesn't this change everything? I've heard the rest of the media. This changes everything. Changes everything. Amy Klobuchar, listen to this. It's a game changer. Cut five. Go. Tell me what your thoughts are, and if you've had a chance, more importantly, to speak to your colleagues, as things have really been uh, stirred up here and scrambled when it comes to witnesses. I think this is a game changer, because I sat there and listened to the president's lawyers uh, on um, this weekend, and their whole case was, oh, this didn't happen, basically. This didn't happen. Look at the readout of the But it didn't happen. What happened? What happened, you idiot? Oh, no, you don't understand. She's smart when she's not abusing her staff. I mean, she's one of the the women of non-color endorsed by the New York Times editorial page. She's got to be good. She was endorsed by the other woman of non-color. Oh, my goodness. Well, then, how dare you question her? It's a game changer. Because apparently, according to the New York Times, Trump did, in fact... Do what they say he didn't do. And what did they say he didn't do? Treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors, including quid pro quo. But there wasn't a quid pro quo. It never happened. But it's a game changer. What's a game changer? This whole thing is synthetic. Go ahead. And now you have the national security advisor, the gatekeeper to all the information, basically saying it did happen. Let me tell you something, lady. If you're ever president of the United States, and you have a national security advisor and a chief of staff, and God forbid if you ever are, by the way, you're a lightweight, but just imagine. You think they're going to let their NSA, their national security advisor, or their chief of staff, the COS... Do you think they're going to let these, these people just testify before Congress willy-nilly? No. Did Obama? No. Did Clinton? No. But listen how they talk like morons to one another. Dana Bash and Amy Klobuchar. Go ahead. Of how they're going to vote on impeachment. I don't know how they deny the American public the truth. How they can okay, Can we slow down a second? Uh, you're not voting on impeachment. Does she understand how the Constitution works, Mr. Producer? It's a trial. You're voting on conviction or innocence. You're not voting on impeachment. Knucklehead. Go ahead. Wouldn't call in Bolton to testify. You've got Susan Collins now saying it's more So likely- tell me something, genius. Why didn't the Democrats who control the House call Bolton to testify? Why didn't they force the issue? Well, uh, and this is where they, they lose it. And this is where the media let them go. Well, you see, it would take too long. They might take privilege. We didn't have time for that. We got to get rid of them. Well, how does it change in the Senate? Well, the Senate? I don't know, but we need it. Go ahead. 
to uh, Mitt Romney already saying that Bolton should testify. So now we have Democrats, left-wing Democrats. She's no moderate centrist. Now we have these left-wing kook Democrats running for president, quoting Susan Collins and Mitt Romney. Quotings. I could never vote for Susan Collins in Maine. I know what you're thinking up there. Look, it's cold. What do you want me to do? Here's the thing. I can't stand her. She's a fraud. Mitt Romney, Utah. I can never vote for Mitt Romney. Another fraud. Another fraud. Utterly unprincipled. Look, you don't have to be a, an ideological conservative. Although from Utah, I don't understand why, but Maine, maybe not. But, but you have to be a chameleon? I can't vote for a chameleon. I don't even like chameleons. But that's, uh, that's Amy Klobuchar quoting Mitt Romney and Susan Collins. You have witnesses which have really no purpose except to defeat Republicans. The Republicans will lose the Senate. The Republicans will lose the Senate. Here you have Zoe Lofgren, one of the impeachment managers. She's interviewed by Jake Tapper, Democrat. Cut nine, go. Congresswoman, you, you told senators this week, quote, don't surrender to the president's stonewalling, unquote. Right. But what do you say to those who say that's what exactly what the House Democrats did by not going to court to try to force subpoenas and force witnesses? We did go to court, as you know. Um, but you didn't pursue it in court. You ultimately, ultimately withdrew the cases and we went We realized to the we had the evidence we were going to get uh, and that it was sufficient uh, to prove our case. But didn't you Oh, sur- I see. I see. It was sufficient back then. It's not sufficient now. Go ahead. To the president stonewalling in that well, sense? In the, I guess in that sense we did, because if we had waited for three or four years, the election would be over. You don't uh, have to wait three or four years, ladies and gentlemen. Let me tell you what a liar this woman is. You can file emergency motions, and you can persuade a court that the matter is so dire that they need to move it up on their, its docket. It's been done before. It's actually been done by the United States Supreme Court before in matters involving impeachment. So they just lie all the time. And like it would take too long. But in the Senate, apparently we're going to get it real fast. Real, real fast. Because when, the, when, the, when they vote for it, when, when the president says executive privilege, all the Democrats and Susie Collins and Mittens Romney and a few other reprobates, they're going to vote with the Democrats and we'll litigate it forever right through the election, so we can use it against Trump. This is the whole play, ladies and gentlemen. They rushed it into the Senate so they could turn it into a long game where the cloud hangs over the head of the President of the United States. That's what's going on. This is why Susan Collins and Romney and the others are so outrageously stupid. Listen, I promise to be impartial, so I need to hear everything that comes in here. I got to make a decision. About what? About removing the President of the United States? Are you kidding me? And by the way, this is like the 15th issue they came up with. It's a complete setup. Again, by the NSC and Adam Schiff. How can you not see this and then try and shut it down? It's a, you know, we need a witness. Bolton. I'll be right back. Mark in. 
In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. All right. Let us uh, see here. Ken Starr did a great job, I thought. Cut 14, Mr. Producer. Go. And significantly in this particular juncture in America's history, the Senate is being called to sit as the high court of impeachment all too frequently. Indeed, we are living in what I think can aptly be described as the age of impeachment. In the House, resolution after resolution, month after month, has called for the president's impeachment. How did we get here with presidential impeachment invoked frequently in its inherently destabilizing as well as acrimonious way? Briefly told, the story begins 42 years ago. In the wake of the long national nightmare of Watergate, Congress and President Jimmy Carter collaboratively ushered in a new chapter in America's constitutional history. Together, in full agreement, they enacted the independent counsel provisions of the Ethics and Government Act of 1978. But the new chapter was not simply the age of independent councils. It became, unbeknownst to the American people, the age of impeachment. Now, how did uh, newsman Democrat Chuck Todd respond to this? Cut 15, go. Can I just make, Barrett, I thought you were being very... um deferential or diplomatic on the Ken Starr thing. I'll say it more or less diplomatically. This is akin to a bank robber complaining that banks were too ro- too easy to rob. I'd say that's less <laughs> diplomatically. What do you say, Bird? She's an attorney. Astonished. It is astonishing that Ken Starr is lamenting that it's become too easy to use impeachment when, by any measure, The Clinton impeachment is something that a lot of people have debated left and right about. Did it sort of define impeachment downward? That that is the impeachment. It isn't like the others. See, ladies and gentlemen, this is the problem when you have liberal Democrats dressed up as newsmen. Eleven felonies were alleged with Bill Clinton. Eleven felonies. Including a felony that occurred right in front of a federal judge including a felony that occurred during a grand jury 
interview. All the Me Too talk. Chuck Todd apparently doesn't have a problem. Probably doesn't have a problem with sexual molestation. Serial sexual molestation. Because this case that he dismisses and says was dumbing down impeachment involved Bill Clinton exposing himself to an inferior state employee, among other things, as well as, that's the civil case, as well as having sex, oral sex, with a 20-year-old intern, another female inferior, not even an employee, an intern, in the Oval Office. Now, apparently for liberal Democrats, that's not a problem. What the hell? They love Lyndon Johnson, John Kennedy, and so forth and so on. But then to cover it up in a civil suit and later a criminal investigation, Clinton lied. He got others to lie, tampered with witnesses, he tampered with evidence, and he truly obstructed justice. Not Congress, justice. These are all crimes that would apply to any American. Any American. Dealing in a deposition, a grand jury hearing, or what have you. But that's no big deal, you see. People are debating, what's the problem? Clinton tried to fix the outcome of a civil case and tried to fix the outcome of a criminal investigation. He invented privileges. He tried to use the office of the presidency to protect himself. Donald Trump, conversely, opened up the White House, opened up the witnesses, the documents, to an investigation that was a fraud, a fiction from day one. Didn't claim a single privilege. None. Donald Trump was set up by the FBI. His campaign was set up by the FBI by national intelligence agencies, by the FISA court, NBC, MSNBC, CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the rest of the frauds. Now, they dismiss that. Abusing women, according to Chuck Todd, is not an impeachable. What's the big deal? And lying about it? And now, Later, Bill Clinton confesses. He cuts a deal, ironically, with independent counsel Robert Ray, who is one of President Trump's lawyers. He confesses to wrongdoing, pays a hefty fine. His law degree is removed by the Supreme Court of Arkansas. He's held in contempt by a federal district judge. He resigns from the bar in the Supreme Court. And what's the big deal, ladies and gentlemen? What's the big deal? There's no big deal. What's the big deal? And how dare Ken Starr even raise it? You know, he's like the bank robber complaining the banks were too easy to rob. He did his job under the law, which doesn't exist anymore because anybody who did their job under that law were doing things that that were harmful to the country. There was only one justice on the Supreme Court in a case called Morrison versus Olson. That is Morrison, the independent counsel, versus Ted Olson. 
Only one justice at the time who voted against the statute, saying it was unconstitutional, and that was Antonin Scalia. So they trash Ken Starr, even now, while they build up Robert Mueller. So Ken Starr is a bad lawyer, and can't have uh, Dershowitz on because he's defended some criminals. But Adam Schiff, he's cool. Man, that guy's cool. Jerry Nadler, oh, nothing like a Nadler. They're terrific. So now the Democrats are talking about conspiracies and a game changer, cover-ups. Here's Schumer. Cut four. Go quickly. According to the report, several sections of Mr. Bolton's book further implicate Mr. Mulvaney. Previously, Mr. Mulvaney denied ever being on the phone when the president spoke to Rudy Giuliani. Mr. Bolton writes that Mr. Mulvaney was on the phone with Rudy and the president was discussing the removal of Ambassador Ivanovich. Wow! Holy! Did you hear that, Mr. Producer? First of all, let's pretend it's true. We have no idea. It doesn't matter! The president's chief of staff is on the phone with Rudy Giuliani talking about removing the ambassador who's an Obama holdover? What the hell are we talking about here? That's a high crime or misdemeanor? That's treason or bribery? Is this a joke? Is this a joke? Yes, it's a joke. It is an absolute joke. But Romney wants Bolton and more witnesses. And so does Collins. And let me tell you, Romney and Collins in the, in the crowd... They're doing the bidding of Schumer, Pelosi, Schiff, Nadler, and the Democrats. They are a disgrace. They are a disgrace. I'll be right back. Mark Levin doesn't just read the news. He makes the news. Call the Mark Levin Show now at 877-381-3811. Just interesting to me, John Bolton didn't resign over the Ukraine. At least that's not what I understood. Did you understand that, Mr. Producer? Wouldn't that kind of stick out? No, he didn't resign over the Ukraine. He didn't resign and make a statement saying, hey, look. Quid pro quo, I can't put up with this. No, he didn't say that. But now it's it's being used as the key reason, you see. And if it's in the New York Times, it must be true. You know, we've talked about this. It's the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, Mr. Producer. You know what else it's the 75th anniversary of, Rich? The cover-up of the Holocaust by the New York Times. The irony, the sickening, grotesque irony that we're now quoting the New York Times because they want to take out Donald Trump. Ladies and gentlemen, I looked at some polls. I know people like to spin them and put a smiley face on them. The media are driving up the Democrats and driving down the president. This is their goal. That's the whole point of this entire thing. That's why they want witnesses. 
And I'm telling these weak Republicans in the Senate, and now it looks like Pat Toomey's trying to cut some kind of deal. Don't do it, Pat. Don't do it. You're going to be voting yourselves out of office. Because I and other patriots are not going to put up with this. You don't cut deals with these people. You stand up and stand on principle. Because history is going to remember you. No deals. According to property data from CoreLogic, the typical mortgage payment is down nearly 3% since May of 2018. That's down 3%. That's right. And this is despite rising home prices. Now, how can that be, you may ask? Well, mortgage rates are extremely low, historically low. And they've been low for a while, but they continue to be extremely competitive. And that makes home ownership much more affordable. So if a new home purchase or a lower rate has been on your mind, make today the day you call my friends at American Financing. Get a free mortgage review. Learn what it takes to own a home for less than you're currently spending in a rent or mortgage payment. Now, they have mortgage consultants across the country, licensed in all 50 states. This is a tremendous group. It's family-owned. I really like these people. I've talked to them. There are no upfront fees to pay. Only takes 10 minutes to get started. Call 888 9182 888-918-1828. 888-918-1828. Or go online at Some of the best coverage of what's been taking place in the Senate can be found on C-SPAN, in my view. I'm not putting down any network. Of course, I'll be attacked for this, but I'm just saying. There's no spin. There's no analysis. You just listen to it. And what's interesting, when you listen to the president's team, you're going to learn a lot of history. You're going to hear a lot of logic. And what's fascinating to me is not one of them has been yelling like they do on the Democrat side. That's a cover-up! My God, look what's going on here! You're violating the Constitution! Oh, my Lord, what's wrong with you senators? What the hell's your problem? A head on the stake. That's what's in the... Okay. Then you have Robert Ray. You have Ken Starr. You have the various White House council members. Jay Sekulow. Rational. Uh, you know, going through it civilly, piece by piece. And uh, they were all very impressive. But I was particularly impressed with Eric Hirschman and uh, Pam Bondi, the way that they... Folks, you won't know this from the reporting, I'm telling you. They killed Hunter Biden and Joe Biden politically, just eviscerated them. And their deals, they're so sleazy, these Bidens. I hope you saw my show Sunday with Peter Schweizer. The opening wasn't too bad, was it, Mr. Producer? I don't think so. Well, here is my response. Here's my response. It's a minute, minute and a half, minute ten, whatever it was, to the 20-some hours of the Democrats last week. From Life, Liberty, and Levin this Sunday. I hope you saw it. Cut six, go. Let's look at what the, the individuals who Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, by the way, almost all of whom are hearsay witnesses, first-hand witnesses to nothing, But what did they have to say about impeachment and high crimes and all the rest of it? Take a look. 
Go. Either of you ever have any evidence of quid pro quo? Mr. Morrison. No, ma'am. Ambassador uh, Volker. No, I did not. Any evidence of bribery? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Not that I can recall. No, they did not. He said, I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. You testified that you had no direct knowledge of any nefarious motivations to withhold aid to Ukraine, correct? Correct. And to your knowledge, you testified that there were no strings attached to the aid, correct? That's page 184 of your deposition. Yeah, no such knowledge. In this impeachment hearing today, where we impeach presidents for treason or bribery or other high crimes, where is the impeachable offense in that call? Are either of you here today to assert there was an impeachable offense in that call? Shout it out. Anyone? Do you have any information regarding the President of the United States accepting any bribes? No. Do you have any information regarding any criminal activity that the President of the United States has been involved with at all? No. That was a minute, 10 seconds. Now, you won't see any of, that, any of that video, not on the Democrat side. House managers didn't play. That was a minute and 10 seconds. I don't need 24 hours. I don't need three days. Case closed. There you go. And the case is closed. No, no, no. And we need more witnesses. Why? I, I, I just feel like we do. We, we, we got to have more witnesses. More witnesses, says Susan Collins, who talks like Catherine Hepburn in her last days. Doesn't she, Mr. Producer? Hey, how are you? And by the way, uh, so does Mitt Romney in some ways. Mitt Romney is so sanctimonious. He's so sanctimonious. It's really... I mean, I don't know how they got the Republican nomination. I don't know how I supported the guy for the Republican nomination, to be perfectly honest with you. It's really quite appalling. Now, this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox, guess what, Mr. Producer? There won't be my show. There's the Super Bowl. So why would I go up against the Super Bowl when I'm going to be watching the Super Bowl? (laughs) So there won't be the Super Bowl. I want to thank uh, the Daily Wire and Right Scoop and another great site, twitchy.com. It is a great site, and they're hilarious over there. Uh, And MRC and their various uh, units and so forth all of whom uh, saw my tweets and Facebook posts early today and chose to, uh, to highlight them as well because there needs to be pushback against this. And I'm happy to be the, uh, the head of the pack. There needs to be pushback on this. I've been through too many of these, you know, as a chief of staff to an attorney general and uh, representing uh, the... Attorney General Meese during the Iran-Contra, even after he left office and uh, dealing with the independent counsel statute over at Landmark Legal Foundation during the Clinton era. I, I've been through enough of these to know exactly what's going on. It's like this leak to the New York Times. We're on to the press now. They don't know it. We're on to them. We're on to Brian Stelter. We're on to uh, Dan Abrams. We're on to all of them. We know what they're doing. And the worst, they're certainly among the worst, has become this guy, Chuck Todd. He doesn't even make any pretense of his bias anymore. There ought to be a scarlet letter L on his forehead. For loser, yes, but leftist would be even better. And the thing is, when you look at him and George Stephanopoulos or 
some of the others. He's like the dumbest of the bunch. Don't you think, Mr. Producer? I mean, he's really, in my view, the dumbest of the bunch. But he thinks, he now, you know, it's, it's a dangerous thing when you have a guy who knows nothing but claims to know everything. That's Chuck Todd. Oi. All right, who should I take as a caller, Mr. Producer? Pick one. KCRG in Michigan. Ken, go. Hey, Mark. It's Ken in Missouri. I mean, Missouri. Just add something I wanted to pose to you, being as neither one of these counts are impeachable. Trump's guys coordinate with uh, McConnell, get up there and say, guess what? We plead guilty to one. We plead guilty to two. All right, now vote. No, no, no. You can't. You can't. You can't. Why would you do that? It'll get it over. Doesn't get anything over. And why? If you're an innocent man, you know Donald Trump's not going to plead guilty. And by the way, it's not up to the uh, uh, to the senators with how Trump pleads. It's not going to be up to his lawyers. You're an innocent man. You have a uh, a corrupted process, and it would be a grave disservice to the man and the country if he did that sort of thing. What'll get it over with, ladies and gentlemen? is if all of you listening to me now call or send an email and be very polite about it. I'm serious about this. Be very civil. To Mitt Romney, to Susan Collins, to uh, Lisa Murkowski, to Cory Gardner. Who else is all? Uh, Lamar Alexander. These are the five, they say. And tell them what you think, politely, that this is an outrage and it ought to come to an end. And you don't need witnesses to nothing. I said witnesses! To nothing. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. All right, I've got a treat for you. We're going to skip commercial. Alan Dershowitz is on the floor of the Senate right now. Go. I stand against the application and misapplication of the constitutional criteria in every case and against any president without regard to whether I support his or her parties or policies. I would be making the very same constitutional argument had Hillary Clinton, for whom I voted, been elected and had a Republican House voted to impeach her on these unconstitutional grounds. I am here today because I love my country and our Constitution. Everyone in this room shares that love. I will argue that our Constitution and its terms, high crimes and misdemeanors, do not encompass the two articles charging abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. In offering these arguments, I stand in the footsteps and in the spirit of Justice Benjamin Curtis, who was of counsel to impeach President Andrew Johnson, and who explained to the Senate that, quote, a greater principle was at stake than the fate of any particular president. And of William Everts, a former Secretary of State, another one of Andrew Johnson's lawyers, who reportedly said that he had come to the defense table not as a partisan, not as a sympathizer, but to defend the Constitution. The Constitution, of course, provides that the Senate has the sole role and power to try all impeachments. In exercising that power, 
the Senate must consider three issues in this case. The first is whether the evidence presented by the House managers establishes by the appropriate standard of proof, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, that the factual allegations occurred. The second is whether, if these factual allegations occurred, did they rise to the level of abuse of power and or obstruction of Congress? Finally, the Senate must determine whether abuse of power and obstruction of Congress are constitutionally authorized criteria for impeachment. The first issue is largely factual, and I leave that to others. The second is a combination of traditional and constitutional law, and I will touch on those. The third is a matter of pure constitutional law. Do charges of abuse and obstruction rise to the level of impeachable offenses under the Constitution? I will begin, as all constitutional analysis begins, with the text of the Constitution governing impeachment. I will then examine why the framers selected the words they did as the sole criteria authorizing impeachment. In making my presentation, I will transport you back to a hot summer in Philadelphia and a cold winter in Washington. I will introduce you to patriots and ideas that helped shape our great nation. To prepare for this journey, I have immersed myself in a lot of dusty old volumes from the 18th and 19th century. I ask your indulgence as I quote from the wisdom of our founders. This return to the days of yesteryear is necessary because the issue today is not what the criteria of impeachment should be, not what a legislative body or a constitutional body might today decide are the proper criteria for impeachment of a president, but what the framers of our Constitution actually chose and what they expressly and implicitly rejected. I will ask whether the framers would have accepted such vague and open-ended terms as abuse of power and obstruction of Congress as governing criteria. I will show by a close review of the history that they did not and would not accept such criteria for fear that these criteria would turn our new republic into a British-style parliamentary democracy in which the chief's executive's tenure would be, in the words of James Madison, the father of our Constitution, at the pleasure See, folks, you listen to this show, you've heard all this before, but it's very important that the senators hear it right now. Go. To that advocated by highly respected Justice Benjamin Curtis, who, as you know, dissented from the Supreme Court's notorious decision in Dred Scott, and who, after resigning in protest from the High Court, served as counsel to President Andrew Johnson in the Senate impeachment trial. He argued, and I quote, There can be no crime, there can be no misdemeanor without a law, written or unwritten, expressed or implied. In so arguing, he was echoing the conclusion reached by Dean Theodore Dwight of the Columbia Law School, who wrote in 1867, just before the impeachment, unless a crime is specifically named in the Constitution, treason and bribery, impeachments like indictments can only be instituted for crimes committed against the statutory law of the United States, as As Judge Starr said earlier today, he described that as the weight of authority being on the side of that proposition at a time much closer to the framing than we are today. The main thrust of my argument, however, and the one most relevant to these proceedings, 
is that even if that position is not accepted, even if criminal conduct were not required, the framers of our Constitution implicitly rejected, and if it had been presented to them, would have explicitly rejected such vague terms as abuse of power and obstruction of Congress as among the enumerated and defined criteria for impeaching a president. You will recall that among the articles of impeachment against President Johnson were accusations of non-criminal but outrageous misbehavior, including ones akin to the abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. For example, Article 10 charged Johnson did attempt to bring into disgrace, ridicule, hatred, and contempt and reproach the Congress of the United States. Article 11 charged Johnson with denying that Congress was authorized by the Constitution to exercise legislative power and denying that the legislation of said Congress was obligatory upon him. Pretty serious charges. Here's how Justice Curtis responded to these non-criminal charges. All right, folks, we will continue this and with some of my commentary when we return after the top of the hour. So I hope you'll be back. And we've got other things I want to hit, too. We've got a lot to do this hour. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. Very important guest. In just a few minutes, Brent Bozell, where we're going to discuss why are we still paying for national public radio? Why do we even need it? Why doesn't it just go to com- go commercial? But first, more Alan Dershowitz on the floor of the Senate. Go. Among criminal law scholars and others, define high crimes and misdemeanors as, quote, such immoral and unlawful acts as are nearly allied and equal in guilt to a felony, and yet owing to the absence of some technical circumstances, technical circumstances do not fall within the definition of a felony. Similar views were expressed by some state courts. Others disagreed. Curtis considered views and those of Dwight, Russell, and others based on careful study of the text and history are not bonkers, absurdist, legal claptrap, or other demeaning epithets thrown around by partisan supporters of this impeachment. As Judge Starr pointed out, they had the weight of authority. They were accepted by the generation of founders and the generations that followed. If they are not accepted by academics today, that shows a weakness among the academics, not among the founders. These who disagree with Curtis's textual analysis are obliged, I believe, to respond with reasoned counter-interpretations, not name-calling. If Justice Curtis's arguments and those of Dean Dwight are rejected, I think then proponents of impeachment must offer alternative principles, alternative standards for impeachment and removal. We just heard that in 1970, Congressman Gerald Ford, who I greatly admired, said the following, in the context of an impeachment of a justice, 
An impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considered it to be at a given moment in history, etc. You all know the quote. Congresswoman Maxine Waters recently put it more succinctly in the context of a presidential impeachment. Here's what she said. Impeachment is whatever Congress says it is. There is no law. But this lawless view would place Congress above the law. It would place Congress above the Constitution. For Congress to ignore the specific words of the Constitution itself and substitute its own judgments would be for Congress to do what it is accusing the President of doing. See, we've had this discussion here at some length. Go ahead. And not Congress. This is precisely the kind of view expressly rejected by the framers who feared having a president serve at the pleasure of the legislature, and it is precisely the view rejected by Senator James Grimes when he refused to accept an interpretation of high crimes and misdemeanors that would change according to the law of each senator's judgment enacted in his own bosom. The Constitution requires, in the words of Gouverneur Morris, that the criteria for impeachment must be enumerated and defined. Those who advocate impeachment today are obliged to demonstrate how the criteria accepted by the House in this case are enumerated and defined in the Constitution. The compelling textual analysis provided by Justice Curtis is confirmed by the debate in the Constitutional Convention, by the Federalist Papers, by the writings of William Blackstone, and I believe by the writings of Alexander Hamilton, which were heavily relied on by lawyers at the time of the Constitution's adoption. There were, at the time of the Constitution's adoption, two great debates that went on. And it's very important to understand the distinction between these two great debates. Mm-hmm. The first, hard to imagine today, but Whether the first there should was, be an impeachment should clause. there be any power to impeach a president at all? And then the second, there what conditions? Members of the founding generation and of the framers of the Constitution who said no, who said no, a president shouldn't be allowed to be impeached. The second, and the second is very, very important in our consideration today, is if a president is to be subject to impeachment, what should the criteria be? These are very different issues, and they are often erroneously conflated. Let's begin with the first debate. During the broad debate about whether a president should be subject to impeachment, proponents of impeachment used vague and open-ended terms such as unfit, obnoxious, corrupt, misconduct, misbehavior, negligence, malpractice, perfidy, treachery, incapacity, peculation, and maladministration. They worried that a president might, quote, pervert his administration into a scheme of speculation and oppression, that he might be corrupted by foreign influence, and yes, this is important, that he might have great opportunities of abusing his power. Those were the concerns that led the framers to decide that a president must be subject to impeachment. But not a single one of the framers suggested that these general fears justifying the need for an impeachment and removal mechanism should automatically be accepted as a specific criterion for impeachment. 
Far from it, as Governor Morris aptly put it, corruption and some other offenses ought to be impeachable. But the cases ought to be enumerated and defined. The great fallacy of many contemporary scholars and pundits, and with due respect, members of the House of Representatives, is that they fail to understand the critical distinction between the broad reasons for needing an impeachment mechanism and the carefully enumerated and defined criteria that should authorize the deployment That's very of this well powerful put. weapon. Let me give very you a well hypothetical put. example that might have faced Congress or certainly will face Congress. Uh, let's assume that there is a debate over regulating the content of social media, whether we should have regulations or criminal civil regulations over Twitter, Facebook, etc. In the debate over regulating the social media, proponents of regulation might well cite broad dangers, such as false information, inappropriate content, hate speech. Those are good reasons for having regulation. But when it came to enumerating and defining what should be prohibited, such broad dangers would have to be balanced against other important policies, and the resulting legislation would be much narrower and more carefully defined than the broad dangers that necessitated some regulation. The framers understood and acted on this difference, but I'm afraid that many scholars and others and members of Congress fail to see this distinction, and they cite some of the fears that led to the need for impeachment mechanism, they cite them as the criteria themselves. That is a deep fallacy. And it's crucially important that the distinction be sharply drawn between arguments made in favor of impeaching and the criteria then decided upon to justify the impeachment specifically of a president. The framers understood this, and so they got down to the difficult business of enumerating and defining precisely which offenses among the many that they feared a president might commit should be impeachable, as distinguished from those left to the voters to evaluate. By the way, none of this will be understood, or if it's understood, will be accurately addressed by the media. Why? It's too cerebral, too scholarly, and of course, it supports the Constitution and the president. So you, you will not see on TV, and you will not hear on most radio programs, this, which is crucially important, Alan Dershowitz, go. ...was against the dependence of the executive on the legislature, considering the legislature, you will pardon me quoting this, a great danger to be apprehended. I don't agree with that. James Madison expressed concerns about the president being improperly dependent on the legislature. Others worried about a feeble executive. Hearing these and other arguments against turning the new republic into a parliamentary democracy in which the legislature had the power to remove the president, the framers set out to strike the appropriate balance between the broad concerns that led them to vote for a provision authorizing this the impeachment is, uh, of the president. We have to take breaks because this is not NPR, so we're going to take a short break here. But before we do, I want to remind you the latest trend in skin care is instant results. Introducing the brand new Genesel RH from Chaminade. Genesel RH delivers next gen retinol anti aging effects with zero redness or irritation. Plus, the RH complex provides acid, a proper form of hydronic acid, crucial for superior retinal effects. 
Now here's Susan from Toms River, New Jersey. The Genesel RH is a game changer. Bags under my eyes are history, and it feels so soft and luxurious. I even use it for redness on my left cheek and on my laugh lines. Thank you, Chamonix. Home run. The new Genesel RH is leading the industry once again. It makes bags and puffiness and even redness a thing of the past. And for a limited time, it's free when you order Genesel jawline treatment. And for results in 12 hours or less, the Genesel immediate effects is also free with your order. Call 800-SKIN-604, 800-SKIN-604, or go to Genesel.com. That's Genesel.com. Order the jawline treatment now and get the new Genesel RH and the Genesel immediate effects absolutely free. Call or go online now, 800-SKIN-604, 800-SKIN-604, or Genesel.com. That's Genesel.com. We'll be right back. Few more minutes of the uh, the goings on in the Senate uh, on the uh, trial, and the reason I'm doing this is because so many of these so-called news outlets have cut out. So here's Alan Dershowitz. Go. It's clear in this issue, and not surprisingly, because he was writing in Federalist Number 65, he was writing not to define what the criteria for impeachment were. He was writing primarily in defense of the Constitution as written and less to define its provisions. But he certainly cannot be cited in favor of criteria such as abuse of power or obstruction of Congress, nor of impeachment voted along party lines. He warned that the greatest danger, these were his words, the greatest danger is that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. In in addition to using the criminal terms innocence or guilt, Hamilton also referred to, quote, prosecution and sentence. He cited the constitutional provisions that states that the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to a criminal trial as a reason for not having the president tried before the Supreme Court. He feared a double prosecution, a variation of double jeopardy, before the same judiciary. These points all sound in criminal terms. But advocates of a broad open-ended, non-criminal interpretation of high crimes and misdemeanors insist that Hamilton is on their side. And they cite the following words regarding the court of impeachment. And I think I've heard these words quoted more than any other words in support of a broad view of impeachment, and they are misunderstood. Here's what he said when describing the court of impeachment. He said, the subjects of its jurisdiction, those are important words, the subjects of its jurisdiction, by which he meant treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, the subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may with peculiar propriety be denominated political, as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to society itself. Those are Hamilton's words. They're often misunderstood as suggesting that the criteria authorizing impeachment include the misconduct of public men or the abuse or violation of some public trust. That is a misreading. These words were used to characterize the constitutional criteria that are the subject of the jurisdiction of the court of impeachment, namely treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Those specified crimes 
are political in nature. They are the crimes that involve the misconduct of public men and the abuse of violation of some public trust. Hamilton was not expanding the specified criteria to include as independent grounds for impeachment misconduct, abuse, or violation. If anything, he was contracting them to require, in addition to proof of the specified crimes, also proof that the crime must be of a political nature. This would exclude President Clinton's private non-political crime. In fact, and this is interesting, Hamilton's view was cited by Clinton's advocates as contracting, not expanding, the meaning of high crimes. Today, some of these same advocates, you look at the same words and cite them as expanding its meaning. Clinton was accused of a crime, perjury. And so the issue in his case was not whether the Constitution required a crime for impeachment. Instead, the issue was whether Clinton's alleged crime could be classified as a high crime in light of its personal nature. During the Clinton impeachment, I stated in an interview that I did not think that a technical crime was required, but that I did think that abusing trust could be considered. I said that. At that time, I had not done the extensive research on that issue because it was irrelevant to the Clinton case, and I was not fully aware of the compelling counter-arguments. So I simply accepted the academic consensus on an issue that was not on the front burner at the time. But because this impeachment directly raises the issue of whether criminal behavior is required, I have gone back and read all the relevant historical material as nonpartisan academics should always do, and have now concluded that the framers did intend to limit the criteria for impeachment to criminal-type acts akin to treason, bribery, and they certainly did not intend to extend it to vague and open-ended and non-criminal accusations such as abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. I published this academic conclusion well before I was asked to present the arguments to the Senate in this case. My switch in attitude, purely academic. You know, you got to give the man credit. He says, this is, I switched and this is why I switched. Most people wouldn't do that. Go ahead. Congress, several senators, expressed different views regarding the criteria for impeachment when the subject was All President right, we're not going to be able to go back, but uh, he's done a fabulous job if people care to listen. And I think the president's lawyers have done a fabulous job. I mean, they've hit it high, they've hit it low, they've hit it in the gut. You have people on television that don't have half the smarts of any of these lawyers telling you uh, they should have done this and they should have done that. The fact of the matter is we shouldn't even be here. The fact of the matter is what's taking place is a travesty. And you can tell the difference between the arguments from the so-called House managers and the president's team. The president's team is classy. The president's team is fact-based, legal-based, constitution-based. The House Democrat managers are beating drums with their repetitious arguments, uh, their emotional and what they're trying to do is appeal to their base. They're trying to threaten the, uh, the Republican holdouts. And uh, if Collins and Romney and the others go for this, uh, they, will, uh, they have the potential of undoing the presidency, undoing the majority in the Senate, and, of course, inflicting grave damage to the Constitution. Right now, the goal is to protect the Constitution. Any witnesses 
in defense or in support of a corrupt system means the Senate will give its imprimatur to a corrupt system. It's the Senate job to protect the Constitution and to protect us. If you want to talk to Mark, we have two numbers for you to call. For regular Americans, call 877-381-3811. For liberals, call 877-381-3811. Let's talk about Levin TV. We just did a brand new episode of Levin TV where I continue to fight against this sham impeachment and expose left-wing hacks on the Hill and in the media. Yeah, well, because what we do at Levin TV, we tell it exactly like it is. We also deal with one of the king co-conspirators, Chuck Schumer. Schumer just recently spewed more nonsense about the impeachment trial, talking about forcing votes to see documents and witnesses. You know, let me tell you something. This is the far lunatic left. But it is, isn't that the M.O. of all radical progressive today's trash the founders, Declaration of Independence, everything that is near and dear to most, most of us? Then they wave them around in defense of their radicalism. They use liberty to destroy liberty and the Constitution to destroy the Constitution. Come join us. Join us for our one-of-a-kind town hall meetings airing at Blaze TV. Just go to LevinTV.com, L-E-V-I-N-T-V.com, sign up, and you'll get a free 30-day trial if you sign up today. Enter promo code LEVIN, and you'll get $10 off your annual subscription. That's Levin TV promo code LEVIN, Levin TV promo code LEVIN. If not now, when? Brent Bozell, the king of MRC. How are you, brother? Hi, Mark. How are you? I, I'm doing great. Brent Bozell, uh, I saw that Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, was set up by a reporter at NPR. And I asked a simple question. Why does NPR exist? I mean, we have thousands of radio channels and stations and podcasts and information flowing left and right and all around. NPR is a throwback of the past. And NPR is quite liberal. I want you to listen to what Brian Stelter had to say on CNN. This guy is really quite the joke, as you guys have pointed out as I've high. But let's listen to how he responded to this. Cut 16, go. Uh, the NPR CEO spoke over the weekend saying we will not be intimidated by this behavior. And Oliver, the president is tweeting now about NPR, and we can put that tweet back on screen, asking, asking Mark Levin's question, why does NPR still exist? Well, the, the short answer is uh, NPR, the, the, the national organization, only receives a small amount of federal funding, mostly through grants. It is local stations that sometimes need that federal support to stay on the air. But NPR as a whole doesn't get a lot of taxpayer money. But the president either doesn't know that or doesn't care, right? It's not really about that for him. No, he likes a safe space of Fox News. That's what he wants his administration officials to go on and, and, and really not really get these hard questions that Pompeo got. <laughs> safe space of Fox. There's one Fox and 4,000 of them. Can I ask you a couple of questions about this? Sure, sure. Can, can first, I can I yeah. speak to what he said? Go ahead. I mean, there's, go ahead. There, there's so much. First of all, he's talking about how these local stations need money by the federal government to to exist. There are, according to NPR's own numbers, there are over 
1,000 of these member stations. That's point number one. If you look at this listing, explain to me, Mark Levin, why one needs to have three NPR stations in Washington, D.C., four in New York City, six in Seattle, and the list goes on and on. Why no? I've thought before, why not just have one station in each city? But then it hits me. Wait a minute. This is national public radio. Why do we have only one station for national public radio, mm-hmm. not 1,000? And I thought, well, look, if you're going to have 1,000 NPR stations, I think we need to have 1,000 Mark Levin stations. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Why not? Think about, think about this. Six NPR, six Mark Levin, different. I'm not talking about shows. I'm talking about stations on, in, in Seattle. This, this is absolutely ludicrous. Look, the president tried something, and then this is very, very unfortunate. The president came out with, with his first budget deal when he took office where he talked about getting rid of 62 wasteful government programs. One of them was the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is the umbrella uh, over which NPR gets their funding. Unfortunately, not only was it not defunded but thanks to the United States Congress, it receives $465 million. That's a $20 million increase, and it's even worse than that. It's slated through 2022. They decided where they're going to give advanced funding to NPR. Another point on this. But, but just stop a sec. Stop a sec. When they go to their audience, only 2% of their – so half a billion dollars goes to their mothership. Well, we don't know this, and that's the point. This is the shell game. They talk about 2%. Go look at their 990s. Try to figure out where their money's coming from. They don't tell you. They get $97 million from, quote, gifts, grants, and membership fees. How much of that is coming from the federal government? Then look at the money that's allocated from the federal government to in, in direct subsidies to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That doesn't include NEA money. That doesn't include NEH money. That doesn't include federal money coming from all sorts of places. And then get this sentence, Mark. You're going to love this one. This is in the report. Tax revenues levied for the organization's benefit, answer, zero. So according to them, they're getting no taxpayer money, although every single penny was taxpayer money. And they're nonprofit, right? So they don't pay taxes. Now, let's speak to the nonprofit. Your business, Talk Radio, to me, it's the most market-driven business that I can think of. The market either supports you or it doesn't support you. The left has been trying to get left-wing stations going and spokesmen going every single one. Al Franken on Air America. Jim Hightower got one. Mario Cuomo got one. Our favorite fellows, Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski, also got got one. Every single one of them failed because there wasn't a market demand for them. So what do they do? They take it from the federal government and let the, let the American tax, taxpayer be forced to pay to have left-wing radio. And they defend it so vociferously. Look, Media Matters put out the word, look at this. President Trump is retweeting Mark Levin asking, why does NPR exist? And you, in other words, now you got to uh, get armed and get ready to fight it. You got Mother Jones, you have uh, CNN, all the left-wing media. And then you have this clown Oliver Darcy, I guess his name is, attacking Fox. What does Fox have to do with any of this? (laughs) 
Well, Fox, Fox is ground zero for everything they don't like. You wonder why Trump doesn't go on there? You know, when an afternoon anchor on NPR calls Trump supporters brown shirts, this might have something to do with it. They'll bring on a conservative if, if it's someone like the editor of Christianity Today who equates Trump as a, you know, to a violent uh, sexual you know, spouse abuser. Then they'll bring on the conservative on there, but they don't bring on conservatives. Get this one. We found this one. You're going to love this one. NPR won't tell you this. NPR has been so favorable of the Obama-Iran arms deal. It took a $100,000 grant from this group called Plowshares Fund, which exists, it's a left-wing group, exists to promote Obama's Iran arms deal. And that money was explicitly marked for their coverage of the Iran arms deal. So they bought their coverage. Oh, my gosh. Now, let me ask you this. This reporter who set up uh, Pompeo, are you familiar with her? Yeah, yeah, this Kelly gal. What is her name? Marguerite something or other. Kelly, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. She, she, I mean, she, the first thing that she asked him was if he was uh, prepared to apologize to the former ambassador to the UK, Ukraine. I mean, that's the very first question. Are you ready to apologize? You, you, you wonder, you wonder why, I wonder why Pompeo went on that show to begin with. He should never have gone on NPR. But according to your own research that I was looking at, she's a well-known leftist over there at NPR. She, she has been attacking conservatives for years and supporting left-wingers for years. She has a very, very decided left-wing ideology. And she's one of these people who calls herself an NPR reporter. They are not reporters. They are left-wing activists who have to be paid for by you and by me, by our tax dollars. And, and the Congress should be ashamed of itself for giving I, them money. I only mention this because I'm getting emails uh, that some are saying or someone said that she's a good reporter. And you're telling me, no, she's a leftist, as a matter of fact. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're also going to tell you that Brian Stelter is a good reporter, too. Uh, I mean, I mean, they... they she, I mean, she, she, she's called, she's called terrorist news agencies conservatives. I mean, this, mm. this is where she, she comes from. She is just a classic NPR. You know, she, she, she slams Devin Nunes uh, for his strange episodes where he talks about government agencies. He, she even slammed the Washington Post, the, the Huffington Post, for having an anti-woman bias. I mean, this is how far left this woman is. You do have to wonder why he did interview with her, because he, it's not news. It's just a hack. His first, I mean, her qu- first question to him is, do you owe Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch an apology? Mm-hmm. What kind of objective question is that? I mean, so, that starts by putting the Secretary of State flatly on the defensive as if he had done something wrong. See, NPR, PBS, they've gotten fat and happy, and they're ideologically driven more and more. And so when they put out a statement, we're here to inform the people. And so, no, you're not. You're here to propagandize. And by the way, Brent Bozell, we have enough people informing the people. There's not another country on the face of the earth that has as many radio stations, television stations, podcasters. 
God knows what out there communicating. There, there was an, there, there, there's absolutely no need for it to begin with. Secondly, about 20 years ago, there was a big uh, hubbub about this. It was the last time people tried to defund them in a serious way. At the end of it, NPR, this is it, I'm tickling my memory banks here, NPR or CPB, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, agreed to undergo an audit. And so they put out requests for audits. If I recall, 16 different institutions came forward and offered to do that independent audit. One by one, each was turned down by CPB as being insufficient, at the end of which they announced, well, since there aren't any out there that we can rely on, we're going to have to choose our own. They chose their own, and one year later, the audit came out and it said, boy, they were doing just a great job. And doesn't NPR really attract listeners who are relatively wealthy? Uh, maybe they've gone to college and graduate school, which is fine. It just means everybody else is subsidizing them, even with their tax-exempt status. And, you know, I think it's perfectly fine. I think I think that's perfectly fine so long as the American taxpayer doesn't have to give them one plug dime. Let those beautiful people come up with the money for the radio network that they're listening to. Let them pay for those 1,000 stations around America. Let them pay for it. It's incredible. Brent Bozell, if people want to learn more about MRC, where do they go? To Fox News. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they can go to mrc.org or our, our flagship um, uh, website, Newsbusters. And you have great people working for it. Thanks for everything Thank you, you do. Mark. All right. God bless. And we'll be right back. Mark You know, postage rates, well, they've gone up again. And thankfully, Stamps.com eases the pain with big discounts. Big discounts off postal, office, retail rates. With Stamps.com, you save five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off shipping rates. That kind of savings really adds up, especially for small businesses. Plus, Stamps.com is completely online, so that saves you time. No more inconvenient trips to the post office. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Stamps.com is a no-brainer. They save you time and money. And it's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. Right now, you, my listeners, get a special offer that includes a four-week trial. Four-week trial. What else? Free postage. What else? And a digital scale without any long-term commitment. You really got to try this. It's terrific. Go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Bunker. That's the key. You'll get all these services, all these discounts. But you got to type in the code word BUNKER. That's stamps.com, enter BUNKER, stamps.com, enter BUNKER. How much time left, Mr. Producer? Now, you know, folks, I follow a lot of sports. I follow a lot of basketball. And over the years, there have been some tremendous basketball players. When I was a kid grew up in Philadelphia, I would watch the 76ers. I would go there and watch it with my buddy Eric. 
way back, we would watch Wilt Chamberlain and Chet Walker and Hal Greer and Wally Jones and Bill Cunningham and others. Saddest day was when the Sixers traded, excuse me, Wilt Chamberlain to the Lakers. And over the years, you watch different players. And, you know, each era has their superstars. And when my wife told me, because she had a TMZ downloaded, I think, and I believe they first reported it, that Kobe Bryant was dead, I said, what? Dead? Dead. I said, from what? I don't know you. I was absolutely stunned. I didn't know Kobe Bryant. I've never talked to him in my life. But it's part of your part of your life because you watch these folks and you have a connection to them, even though they may not have a connection to you. And then you learn originally that five people died, perhaps a daughter. Then you learn five people did pass away. Kobe Bryant. And his 13-year-old daughter. Then you learn nine people passed away. Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter. A baseball coach, his wife, and his 13-year-old daughter. And you go, what a horrific tragedy. And now, Mr. Producer, isn't the latest that it was pilot error? Something with the weather, but didn't they fly into the side of the hill? He may have, look, I'm not trying to misreport here. I thought what I heard was that the fog, the overcast, there may have been a miscalculation. And so often that seems to happen. I'm not big on helicopters, but that's beside the point. But it is heart-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching. And you can see people of all stripes, political, racial, whatever it is, are in shock are in shock because Kobe Bryant is a cultural figure. People identify with him. He entertained people. You learned about him. You learned about his family. You have people, sportscasters, who know him well, and they're able to relate his personal, you know, floibles and so forth to you. And so he's quite human. He's a human, but he's quite human. And so we, and so we're, we wish the family well. What can you say when a tragedy like this? A mother just lost her husband and her daughter. An entire family was wiped out. Another, the husband, wife, and their daughter. So it's a horrific thing that took place. It's a tragedy. And so I understand why people are saddened and upset by it. I know when I when my day comes, Mr. Producer, half the people will be sad and half the people will be celebrating. That much I know. But when it comes to Kobe Bryant, everybody's sad. And for good reason. And God bless his family. And all the families of those who perished. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. I'll be right here tomorrow, folks. I hope you'll join me. God bless you. Thank you.